Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. And so if that is confidence, well, what is security? It, and so let's begin to look at chapter 4, Portrait of Christ-Honoring Security. And we'll walk through our definition again. Biblical security is a disposition of stability that allows for a patient and increasingly accurate interpretation of our personal performance, our interpersonal interaction, and our circumstances. So let's pause and take this part of the definition. Uh, that it is a patient, it's its disposition of patience that allows me to accurately interpret what I'm doing, how I'm interacting with other people. Uh, if you'll allow me to use an illustration from, from baseball again. A lot of times what I see with kids when they're trying to learn to catch a fly ball and they're running after the fly ball, uh, what they do is they run on the flat part of their foot. So when they run, their head is moving up and down, which makes the ball look like it's moving up and down. So when the ball is high, they feel like it's going to go really far and they speed up. But then when the ball is low, they feel like it's going to come low and they slow down. And so they're running and you can just tell they're lost. And there's no way for them to gauge where the ball is actually going. Coaching tip. If you run on the balls of your feet, up here on, up near the toes, then what happens is, is between your ankle joint and your knee joint, it allows your head to stay still so the ball is actually moving and you can catch it. A sense of security. It's what allows us to assess what's really going on so that we can respond to our performance, the interaction of somebody else, our circumstances in an accurate way instead of when things are going good, hey, we think it's great. When things are going bad, it's terrible. And we just, it, we have no sense of stability to interpret those things. And so what else is involved in security? Uh, we assess these things in the midst of situations that are as of yet uncertain, incomplete, challenging, or negative. And so really, those are the only times when security is relevant. It's in the midst of the unknown. It's when the outcome is still up in the air. It's when there's a reason to be nervous. And so sometimes we think the fact that we're uncertain or that we don't know means that we're not secure. Well, it's only in the midst of the unknown that security is relevant. Um, in the same way that it's only when we are afraid that courage is relevant. I'll never know if I have the virtue of courage unless I'm afraid. And sometimes we think, if I'm afraid, that means I have no courage. Well, no. Until I get to a frightening moment, that's the only time courage has to show itself. And so in the same way, it's only in the midst of uncertainty uh, that, that security has a way to show itself. And sometimes we think that that very presence of uncertainty means... We're not secure, and we can, as we understand what it is, we can kind of let that go. And so, biblical security acknowledges that failure, 
criticism, and personal sin will occur. If we don't acknowledge that, we're either prideful or delusional. Um, But it does not allow the legitimate guilt, disappointment, or embarrassment of these events to create instability or dash hope. We can face disappointment, even failure, and it doesn't define us. Because we are living in the promise of Philippians 1.6 that God will bring to completion the work that He began in us. We don't know how many ups and downs and how many successes and failures are going to be a part of that, but we are sure that that is going to be brought to completion. And that allows us to have a sense of security to continue and to accurately assess where we are in the process because we are confident in God's promise. Now, as we think about security, I think there's one question that really gets at the heart of security. Am I good enough for blank? You can put a name, you can put a group, you can put an ideal. Am I good enough for blank? And what we're going to do in the rest of this chapter is to look at the three components of that question. And we'll start with, uh, how do we define good? Well, there's lots of ways we can define good. Our appearance, are we attractive? Power and influence, uh, our sense of humor, uh, our moral standard, popularity, charisma, intelligence, uh, how much Bible knowledge do we have, how much money do we have, how many friends and how much exceptions do we have, our family history, our athleticism. And, um, you know, any of those can be our definition. So let me try to model what this internal dialogue would sound like taking a student. Let's say you had a son or a daughter who was in school. And they were doing really well in their classes. You know, they A, B student, honor roll. And and you're talking, you're complimenting them. And they say, yeah, but I can't shoot basketball. Okay, what have they just done? They've said, good is athleticism. Or let's say they're a really mature student and they just they make good decisions, they assess things well, and you're affirming them for that sense of maturity. And they say, yeah, but my classmates make fun of me as a teacher's pet. What just happened? Well, the thing that they're calling good is acceptance. And so these other things, true as they may be, carry very little weight. They kind of, they float. These things that I call good carry a lot of weight. Now, as we look at this list, um, I think one of the things that we need to acknowledge is that all of these things are good. And any of these things I would want for you and I would want for me. Uh, None of them are bad. Yes, we may turn them into idols and that would be uh, unhealthy and disruptive, but in and of themselves, they're good. But it's in light of that that I think we need to hear the warning of Paul Tripp. He says it's very important to note that the most dangerous idols for all of us are those that are easily Christianized. If I can put a Bible verse with what I want most, if I take you know, this totality of what's good and I take one slice of the pie and I got a Bible verse where I can say, God says this is good! That is the easiest place for me to make this my entire life. He goes on to say, uh, the principle here is that if God does not own the fear of our hearts, 
He will not own our lives. Now that's not God being controlling. And he goes on to tell us, Jesus demands everything, not so that we would submit to his control, as if he were some insecure deity, but to free us from the control of things that were never designed to control us. He knows that if we hold on to these things with closed hands, as if this is what's going to make life okay, then we shrink the life, our life to the size of these things. And it's going to be bad for us. But we, when we can hold the blessings that He's given to us with an open hand, not dismissing them as if they were allergic to them or they were bad, but we could just hold them with open hands for Him to do with them whatever He saw fit to be best, then we can truly enjoy them. I think that's what we see in Psalm 115, especially verse 8, where there's this principle that comes very clear. We become what we worship. In terms of fame, when we think about fame, when we see that, we, we all want to be Hannah Montana. But as we strive for it, we invariably become Miley Cyrus. That, that, that as it consumes us, it just takes on a life of something that that's not healthy, that's destructive, that that should elicit a sense of compassion and, and pity from us. You know, if what we want is appearance, we become vain. If what we want most is wealth, we become greedy. If what we want most is popularity, we become shallow. If what we want most is to have strong convictions and know exactly what we ought to think and be able to express that to another person, then we become dogmatic in a way that is abrasive and unhealthy. And so the first part of security is having a healthy and balanced definition of what is good. But the second part is determining what is good enough. Because I will tell you, enough may be the nastiest word in the English language. I know it has six letters, but I am convinced it is a four-letter word. Uh, I can take the word enough, put it in any question, and make you feel awful. Do you think you pray enough? I mean, God is there, always listening, available to you at any moment. Do, do you really think you pray enough? Do you read God's Word enough? I mean, God has made Himself known to you in the pages of Scripture as a love letter to you. If this came from the love of your life, don't you think you would read it more? Do, do you read your Bible enough? If you're a parent, do you spend enough time with your kids? I mean, they're only going to be this age for a short period of time. You only get this moment to influence them. Do you really think you're spending enough? To, just stop it! Ah, I hear that question, I feel icky, I just, no. You put the word enough in a question, and we either want to shrivel up, or we want to bow up and say, why are you judging me? I mean, it's just, it is an awful word to put in a question. And so sometimes, even when we have a good definition of good, we attach this sense of enough to it that makes it unbearable. Paul Tripp takes this a little further. He says, When I carry the meeting of my own needs as the most dominant focus of my living, 
I will always struggle with the anxiety that comes from realizing how small the circle of my control actually is. If I think that there's something that I have to have to meet my needs and I have to have enough of it, and I begin to quantify what that is and do it, I begin to realize I don't have as much control as I need. I will never have enough. And that's why he goes on to say, the need expansion dynamic is what happens here. The more I focus on my needs, the more things in life get loaded into that category. It becomes overwhelming. And it's where I would just take a moment to remind us again. Too often we think that God can only work through our strengths when He can also work through our weaknesses. But as He said to Paul, I think He would say to us, my strength is made made perfect in your weakness. Not that you're weak in every area, but even in those areas where you would say, God, here, I'm just not enough. He can work then too. He can show Himself to be sufficient where we are insufficient. And that is an opportunity for us to put Him on display in a way that is harder for us to do in our strengths. I think another way to get at this piece of enough is just to ask the question, who is more secure? Celebrities? You know, those who have some outstanding talent that makes them stand out above everybody else, that they are recognized in all the world for what quality that they have, that if anybody had enough, it would be them. Who is more secure? Celebrities or common folk? I mean, let's just ask. Where is there a greater preponderance of drug addiction? as they try to cope with life, living up to that level that they feel like they can get in some of these peak pinnacle moments. Who has healthier and more satisfying marriages and relationships? I mean, there's a reason why tabloids always have a story. Because those that we know best, who stand out most, who have those elite, yeah, their relationships don't tend to be the most stable and satisfying things. Where is the suicide rate higher? I mean, we just look at it and we say, is it being excellent and and standing out in these areas that would give us a sense of it being enough? Or do those who actually stand out in that way realize that even when they do that, it's not enough to provide the kind of stability and satisfaction that would allow them to enjoy life? And so the... The third part of the question of insecurity. Good enough for who? And there's any number of ways that we could answer that question of who. It could be one person. You know, if my dad could just say, I'm proud of you, then I feel like everything would be all right. It could be a group of people. If I just got accepted by this group, if I could be a part of this team, if I could be uh, hired at this company, maybe it's a group of people, a social ideal, uh, you know, some image of what it is to be a good mom or a good dad. There's some kind of social ideal that, you know, all the time we hear about mama guilt and that kind of thing, and it just, it's such a heavy weight. Maybe it's me. 
Maybe it's my own, I am my own worst critic and, and I just feel like it would be prideful or wrong or I don't know what I would do if I wasn't jumping down my own throat. Or maybe it's some false view of God oh, where he is this cosmic cop who can never be pleased that he is looking for a return on the investment that he made in me in Jesus Christ. And I go, how am I ever going to make a return on that investment? How can I ever do more than what you did for me? As if somehow he were a boss looking for a return on his investment. And so whatever that may be for you, here are the kind of questions that I would encourage you to ask to help you place this aspect of insecurity into perspective. What does this person represent to me? What would their approval do for me? What form would I most like their approval to take? When did their approval become so important? Was it a certain point in my growing up? Was it a certain event that just kind of changed the way I looked at things? Whose approval in a similar role do I value less? Are there other people? Again, we use the example, if I could just have my dad's approval, does somehow mom's approval mean less because dad's is not there? How do I respond when I have gotten this person's approval? Whose love has I discounted in pursuit of this person's approval? Who has God brought alongside who would be His voice, His hands, His presence to me? And I just think, no, that, that doesn't count. How have I organized my life to gain this person's approval? And I think as you wrestle with those kinds of questions, what we will all begin to realize is whoever we answer that question with, they begin to take on a messianic significance. Their presence, their voice in our world does everything for us that Christ was intended to do. They become our judge. They're the one who has the final say. If they say, well done, it is well done. If they don't, it was bad. There is no sense in which I could hear from Christ, well done, my good and faithful service, and that be okay if they don't say it. They become my Savior. They're the one who can make everything okay. They're my peace giver. They're my prince of peace. They're my security giver. They're the one that I want to run to as my rock and refuge. The one that I think could be my shelter in whatever storm. They're my shepherd. They're the one that when I imagine walk, somebody walking with me through the hardships of life, it is them. Now you may say, is it so wrong for me to want somebody to do that? Are you saying I'm being selfish for say I'm really not. I don't think it is at all wrong or selfish for us to say key people in our life and parents and spouses and friends and small groups for us to want them to treat us with honor. What I am saying is that when they become first and when their voice outweighs the voice of Christ our Savior, then it damages everything. As C.S. Lewis would say, when we... When we put our earthly dears to head the voice of God, everything crumbles. But when we put first things first, then second things don't collapse. They don't erode. They don't dissipate. They increase. They can actually do what they were intended to do when we don't ask them to do more than they were ever intended to do. 